You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the Inside China podcast. My name is Mimi Lau, and it's great to be back. We've been making episodes about the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the pandemic for 20 months now. And how interesting that, after all we've talked about, all that's happened since then, that one word still echoing through headlines worldwide, that many people first heard back in January 2020, it's once again dominating world news. That word is Wuhan. This week, you're going to hear from three regular visitors to this podcast. Simone McCarthy, Cici Joe, and Josephine Ma will talk about three very different aspects of how the pandemic is affecting China and how it is affecting the world as a result. Let's start with Simone. She's actually in the U.S. right now, and the initial stories about the U.S. intelligence report on the Wuhan lab leak theory have just been filed. So, Simon, are you seeing or hearing much discussion about this investigation by U.S. intelligence into the Wuhan lab leak theory? Yes. So, actually, we knew that the 90-day deadline for the intelligence agencies to submit the report to Biden was today. Um, and there was a heads up from the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday saying that they're on track, they're on schedule to deliver this, and that there will be a declassified report coming out to the public in a matter of days. But it's just really within the last hour or two that some of the major U.S. outlets have begun reporting, you know, persons familiar accounts of what's in the report. And so far, I don't know if this is very surprising to me personally anyway, but so far it seems like the assessment is not a definitive conclusion. Um, We have Wall Street Journal and, and Washington Post both reporting that. And I think that that's kind of par for the course, given that It's just such a complicated question of understanding and unraveling how the viruses emerge and not knowing what kind of information uh, these intelligence agencies were looking at as well. And hopefully we'll get more clarity on that, too. But it's an incredibly complicated topic. And so I I would have been very surprised if they had come out and said, we definitely solved it from over here in Washington. Can you take us through the development or should I say the evolution of this theory? It started as a conspiracy theory on the fringes of the web. Then it was reborn by intensive promotion by Fox News and its allies. Then was kind of given credence by the WHO. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So, I mean, really the theory that a laboratory in Wuhan that studies bat coronaviruses may have been involved in the outbreak of COVID-19 was first perpetuated by Chinese internet users in China in the earliest days when everyone was starting to figure out what was going on with the outbreak. But it didn't take long for that to, you know, cross over the oceans. And um, it certainly became part of a narrative within the Republican Party and the Trump administration in 2020, which was very much tied into sort of anti-China rhetoric, some uh, racist language that was being used to describe the virus itself. And so it very quickly sort of took on this 
I guess, sort of unscientific tone. And at that time as well, a lot of what was being questioned was whether or not this was a bioweapon, was this you know engineered to be released, um, a lot of really inflammatory claims. And so there was at that time a group of prominent scientists who came forward with a letter in the Lancet Medical Journal, you know, very well-respected journal. And they were saying, you know, we stand behind our colleagues in China and these accusations are based But as time went on, and I think in particular, the Trump administration transitioned into the Biden administration, things also started to change a little bit around how this theory was being viewed. Another one of the reasons for that is that there was there have been a number of really dedicated Internet sleuths who have also been looking for different information and kind of pulling out, especially information about some of the research that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is a leading research facility in uh, obviously Wuhan, some of the research that they were doing out in these provinces in southwestern China that are home to bats that carry similar related coronaviruses. And so there started to become some more mainstream scientific voices that were also saying, well, okay, maybe this isn't like a bioengineered weapon, but is it possible that there was maybe a researcher who was out in the field who got bit by a bat while he was doing research, or maybe somebody was doing experiments in a laboratory and they didn't have quite the right safety protocol, or they just made a mistake. Is it possible that this is a way that the virus could have gotten out and began spreading in Wuhan? Part of that, I think, too, is because there was at the start of this year, as we've talked about before, the WHO-led mission, which went to Wuhan, brought a team of international scientists there, and they also didn't come up with any kind of smoking gun. Like, aha, we found out where this came from. So that mission ended, and you know, scientists weren't surprised that they hadn't figured out the origins because this is, as I said before, just a really complicated and dynamic process that can take years. But at the same time, the fact that there was so little evidence that really came out of that, I think also raised more questions like, well, what else should we be looking at? And then sort of jaw-droppingly, Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, came forward and as he was accepting that report from the World Health Organization-led international team, said, well, we need to look into this more. That team found that the that a lab origin was extremely unlikely. And Dr. Tedros said, we need to, I want to put more resources into looking into this. It's It's premature to dismiss it. And then after that, Biden, at the end of May, following a number of prominent U.S. scientists, also came out with a letter in the journal Science saying that not that they thought that it was necessarily that the virus came from a laboratory, but just that they felt as though that should get sort of equal weight in research into the origins of the virus. So that should be considered if this is going to be a comprehensive, thorough, transparent probe. And so Following that um, was when President Biden came out with his 90-day call for the intelligence agencies to actually evaluate what the intelligence said. Is there anything in the data that the U.S. has that might help to answer this question? And I think that also played a significant role in sort of boosting what was once a fringe theory you know, and something that was tinged with ugly politics, you know, kind of even a nice way to describe it, to then something that was 
very much being, you know, the center of a lot of people in Washington's jobs, trying to figure out if there was any more clarity that they could reach on it. I do want to say, though, Mimi, that a number of prominent experts, virologists, evolutionary biologists still are very steadfast in their belief that it's much more likely that the virus came from a natural interaction between humans and animals because those interactions happen all the time. And even more new evidence is coming out to support that. We we spoke at the beginning of the summer about that new research out of Wuhan, which showed that there was a really robust trade of wild, illegal wild animals in and out of those markets. And so I definitely don't think that, you know, I think a lot of scientists are saying, well, we should look at all the possibilities. We we continue to see research papers. Even right now, there's a there's a new one out in the journal Cell from really prominent thinkers, really prominent biologists and virologists who are saying, you know, the, the preponderance of the evidence is still on the natural origin. So that's what just makes this so kind of interesting because very, very smart people can have very different viewpoints on it. Simone, take us through your latest story. It talks about some of the scientists involved in the original COVID-19 investigation to Wuhan five months ago. What have you found out? That report that I mentioned, which was the culmination of the four weeks that this WHO-led team of international researchers spent on the ground in Wuhan working with and reviewing research by Chinese scientists really has faced a lot of pushback, even from before the final report was even released. And some of those critiques have been about conflicts of interest. They've been about whether or not they really looked critically at the lab leak theory. There's also been a lot of concerns about data transparency coming out of China. How much information did they even have access to? And so what I reported on today was a commentary written by the 10 international team members and one other international scientist who was involved with that group. And it's the first time that actually that group has come out and said, kind of defended their research and said, you know, this is what we were working with. We were given a mandate by the WHO. We actually extended our mandate. We went beyond that original terms of reference that was negotiated between China and WHO to ask questions about the lab. We sat down with the heads of three laboratories that study coronaviruses in Wuhan. We asked them about if they had any unusual illnesses leading up to the outbreak. We asked them about their biosafety procedures and they were kind of saying, you know, I'm reading between the lines and paraphrasing a little bit here, but they, you know, they were saying, we really went out of our way to do this. And it wasn't really within our scope to do like a formal laboratory audit or something of that nature, which when we talk about that, it's like a much more formal, specialized biosecurity evaluation and procedure. So that was one thread in there that they talked about. But really the driving force behind, I think, why they decided to put this comment together in the journal Nature is that they feel like it's moving too slowly. One of the key things that would really be a critical clue for tracing the origins of this virus or any virus is antibody studies, where you go and you take blood samples or you look at stored samples and you see if they have traces of infection. And you know those aren't perfect, but they can really give 
some interesting and critical insight into where this infection, where this virus might have been spreading. And so those antibodies, if they're just in a person and they're not properly stored, they don't last forever. And we are coming up to two years since we think that this virus passed from an animal into people. We think that that, you know, scientists think that that probably happened in September, October, November of 2019. And so the clock is really ticking. And they felt as though there was interest from China in continuing the studies that were outlined in the original WHO report, which they say very clearly in that nature comment. And I also was able to speak with Marian Koopmans, who is a Dutch virologist who led one of the teams within that international group. And she also said that she felt like the call for the lab audits was creating um, a bit of a stumbling block when it came to just really getting this off the ground and getting forward. But I, I think basically we can really read into this that these guys are feeling extremely frustrated that they've made these recommendations and they're not getting off the ground. But then, of course, the other side would be, you know, you could see that the argument would be, well, we don't want to just go and do half an investigation. If we want to investigate the labs, we should do it all. So you can certainly see kind of the dialogue between the two sides there. But right now, because the laboratory audits have been included in the WHO's proposal for their phase two studies, Beijing has come out very strongly against welcoming a team back. They're they're not interested in participating in that kind of investigation, which they feel is politically motivated, not scientifically driven. What exactly are these scientists looking into? Can you unpack some of their priorities in this investigation? Just to be clear, and these scientists are, they've worked with the WHO on this mission, on the first mission, but they themselves are independent scientists who were appointed to this task by the WHO. And so they're view on this is slightly different than what the WHO is calling for, in particular related to the lab audit. So at the end of this paper, what they do is they just explain what they asked the WHO to do for the next phase of studies. They themselves gave a set of recommendations for sort of six key priorities. And so those are sort of, I mean, they're they're both research that would take place within China and outside of China. And so that would include looking for early COVID-19 cases in all of the regions that have had some little clues or evidence about indications that there was early circulation of the virus, in particular in late 2019. Um, They also want to do those antibody surveys that I talked about earlier, where you look for traces of the virus, traces of past infection in people's blood. Another thing that's really important, which relates to those wildlife markets, is tracing back to all of the wildlife farms, as particularly the ones that were supplying the markets in Wuhan. And China has reformed their wildlife trade policies almost immediately after the outbreak. So a lot of those paths may have run cold, but I think the idea is that there are still people there who have worked on those farms. There may still be certain animals that are there. I mean, there's still fur trading going on. So that's another thing that at least there can be studies of antibody testing on those farms, you know, talking to people about if they had symptoms at that time, anything like that. 
And then also continuing to look for those animals that may be hosts of the originator virus. So that's, I mean, we've seen that so far with bats, finding bats that have right now the closest virus that's been found in a bat is 96%. But is there one that's 98 or, you know, how, how close can we get? That will also depend on what path the virus took, how long it was circulating in a secondary animal, if that was indeed how it happened. And then I think the the other thing that they mentioned is just sort of anything that they do find, make sure they're checking how those people were exposed, what route might they have gotten infected by. And then last, but I think certainly not least, is that they say continue to investigate any credible new leads. And we've already seen some of those come out. And in particular, I'm going to just return back to that um, wildlife study that came out of Wuhan that really does provide a lot more information about the animals that were moving through there. So that's definitely, I mean, they cite that in this comment, and that's definitely the kind of information that can continue to feed into, you know, whether in China or elsewhere, continue to feed into how we go about unraveling this this incredible mystery that's caused just incredible suffering and disruption in the world. We'll be reading a lot more from you on this Wuhan lab leak report to Joe Biden on scmp.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. What do you need to know about China's 1 billion internet users? What are they using it for? Who's making money from it? Who are the new players? And what's the forecast for China's tech IPOs and startups? SCMP Research presents The China Internet Report 2021. Expert analysis and forecasts on e-commerce, fintech, market growth, and industry trends. Download your free copy at sc.mp cir or come to scmp.com and search for The China Internet Report 2021. Cici Zhou is with the Political Economy Desk here at the SCMP and has been reporting on the economic impact of China's zero-COVID strategy. Hello, Cici. Hi, Mimi. Cici, you've been following China's economic recovery from the pandemic, but also seeing some increasing tensions about China's zero tolerance to COVID-19. Can you tell us what you have found? Yeah, so there was a short-lived debate about the economic impact of this zero-tolerance strategy. First of all, the stance of the authorities is quite clear, which is that they will definitely stick to the zero-tolerance strategy. For example, there was a teacher from Jiangxi province. Uh, he said something on social media, said that we might... Uh, need to live with the virus and then maybe see what happens. And then if everything, you know, is not that serious, maybe we can, you know, try to live with the uh, virus for the, for the whole country. And then he was detained for 15 days. So this is quite clear. And then some of the government policy advisors are also supporting this idea, saying that the Chinese government should definitely uh, stick to this policy. Beijing is celebrating uh, containing COVID-19, um, not just the outbreak itself in terms of minimizing the death toll, but also at how quick it has managed to achieve an economic comeback. Can you tell us the reason behind it? Yes. So one example that is quite clear is China's exports surged during the pandemic 
because of the coronavirus was ravaging the rest of the world last year. So the demand for working from home stuff and also those uh, PPE were surging. And then China was main manufacturer of all those products. And then there was a professor, you know, who is called Li Ling from the Peking University and who is also very close to the Chinese government. And she said, uh, with such a large amount of experts, we are a little bit like the United States during the Second World War, which provided arms to the world. And we are now providing all kinds of uh, core supplies to the world. So I think that partially gives Beijing the confidence that even if the border remains closed and China's economy will doing fine, at least for the near future. We have one case of COVID reported at the Ningbo port a couple of weeks ago, and we have seen the shutdown of the cargo section of the Shanghai airport because of less than 10 cases of COVID. What's the economic impact of these drastic shutdowns? Yes, Mimi, it is indeed a drastic measure, and China will continue to do it. You know, Ningbo is very close to Shanghai, and uh, the Ningbo port is the third largest business port in the world, and it's already, you know, the end of August. That means, you know, the shipment of Christmas-related stuff already started to be shipped to Europe and the U.S., and previously, there had already been, you know, huge disruption of the global shipping. And then this delay, again, you know, adds a lot of concerns and uncertainty for the global shipping industry. You know, the Ningbo port was shut down for two weeks, which has already caused, you know, huge disruption. And it just got reopened today. Susie, can you take us to the domestic economic impact behind these drastic shutdown measures? Yeah, so the cost for the zero COVID uh, strategy is huge. We can just take Yangzhou for example. I think the outbreak in that city has almost, you know, brought under control. But previously, more than a dozen rounds of mass testing has been, you know, carried out in that city, which is unbelievable. And uh, the local government has to pay all the cost. But if you um, look at the fiscal surplus uh, across the country, for the first half of this year, only Shanghai had a financial surplus. That means the local governments, you know, they lack money. And if they continue to do those countless rounds of mass testing, that's going to be a huge cost for them. So some economists are already suggesting that this kind of mode is not sustainable. And some economists are also calling for that the authorities should let people to publicly talk about the cost and then see which way is the best for China. If the cost is too unbearable, then they may need to figure out another way to deal with the virus. But apparently, it is almost impossible for the Chinese authorities to change this, their strategy. Yeah, so it's just like burning cash endlessly. And obviously, that would not be sustainable. And you mentioned how China is not ready for this sort of discussion. Like you mentioned, the detained teacher um, for even bringing up something so harmless like that on social media and got yes. detained for 15 days. That really speaks volume about how not ready China is with this kind of discussion. So 
Ever since that detained teacher being locked up about two weeks ago, are there any academics or economists here tell you about China's zero tolerance policy,、um, about any changes that is likely to happen? No, actually. So even the prominent doctor Zhang Wenhong from Shanghai, you know, he previously, you know, said something on social media like maybe China should live with the virus, and then he was under huge attack on social media. And then just a couple of days, he changed his narrative. He said, "Oh, the current zero COVID strategy for China is suitable for the country." Something like that. On the other hand, I know that a lot of people were asking the questions like, "When will China open its border?" I think the common sense is that at least before the Winter Olympic Games next year, it seems almost impossible, you know, for China to. Reopen its border because the Delta variant is so aggressive. Yeah, yeah, aggressive. And then also in China, you know, in September next year, there's a、uh, Asian Games, and then in next four, there's a most important meeting. You know, the Twentieth Party Congress. So I don't think China want the country to be disrupted by the variant before that. And that's why I think they'll certainly stick to this zero COVID strategy. But that's going to be something important every year, every season for China, and、mm. they probably can't avoid this forever. Yeah. But for it, now, it looks like this is where they are heading to. Yeah, I think it also depends how you know other countries can control the virus in their country. Because in China, you know, they can、uh, mobilize the whole country. To fight against the COVID, but that is impossible in Western democracies. That is a huge difference. Well, thank you so much for your time, Cici.、Um, this is really interesting discussion, and we look forward to having you back if there's any changes and updates regarding the zero tolerance top policy for COVID. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Josephine, welcome back. My pleasure. Americans are very familiar with the name of Dr. Anthony Fauci, but there is an equivalent of him in mainland China—a man by the name of Dr. Zhang Wenhong. Can you explain who he is? Why is he a target for controversy? Sure, Dr. Zhang is a doctor in Shanghai Huashan Hospital, and he's been quite. Vocal during the COVID nineteen, and he's been doing a great job in educating the public about how to uh, prevent um, the transmission and the hygiene measures and so on. So he becomes like a household name, and he's very popular among Chinese public. And some people compare him to Dr. Fauci in the U.S. because of his popularity. So Dr. Zhang wrote like on Weibo from time to time. He's Speaks to media, but by the end of last month, he、um, wrote an article in、uh, in Weibo, that's the Chinese version of Twitter, and he talked about the threat of the Delta variant, how people should be vigilant about it, and he talked about、uh, whether vaccines from different countries can, whether they can prevent the transmission of it. And he also talked about、um, the cluster in Nanjing because there was a small outbreak in Nanjing last month, and、um, so he talked about all these things. And then he said, like,、uh, for example, the the outbreak in Nanjing is an evidence that 
no matter how hard we try, there's always risk for um, the transmission of the Delta variant. And he um, said, uh, like different countries will have to think about ways to coexist with the virus in the long term, because um, many scientists said that um, COVID-19 could become an endemic. So what gave him trouble is this notion or this phrase that um, we have to learn how to coexist with the virus, coronavirus. Um, He didn't really say China should get rid of his zero tolerance approach. He didn't say China should open its border. He just say um, different countries should come up with their own solution to face this reality. And he said China has done well in the past and he's he's sure that China is going to come up with a wise solution for this. That's what his article is about. Coexisting with COVID, that's something other countries like Singapore, Australia are talking about. So what is happening after Dr. Zhang's article? So about a week after Zhang's article, Gao Qiang, he's the former health minister in China. He wrote an article on the social media platform run by the People's Daily. And in that article, Gao actually criticized the approach by Western countries to coexist with the virus. He's saying that it's irresponsible and uh, for the relationship with uh, mankind and virus like that is always like eliminate the virus, otherwise will be threatened by the virus. So he is uh, is totally unacceptable to coexist with the virus because of the harm the virus can do to mankind. And he didn't really name Zhang, but he said that um, well, um, some experts in China, they are self-contradictory because on one hand, they talk about how dangerous the Delta variant is. But on the other hand, he's saying that we should live with the, with the virus. And after his article, there was kind of like a wave of attack on Zhang. So a lot of people posted uh, messages um, online um, criticizing Zhang, saying that he's kind of like surrendering to the virus and they call it surrenderism. And um, so there was a lot of uh, uh, criticism and a lot of pressure on Zhang and the whole thing kind of like snowball. The government didn't say anything But if we look at the government policy, um, in recent weeks, it has doubled down on all these restrictions um, to make sure there's no local transmission, especially when um, they are aware of the high transmissibility and also the threat posed by the Delta variant. For example, the government requires, like all local government, if you are a government of a community of more than 5 million people, if there's a local case, then you have to come up with ways to test all the 5 million people um, and come up with a result within three days. So they are very strict and they, they kind of like raise the bar on the speed and also on the way that how the local authorities will have to track down on every single case and cut off the transmission route once um, there is um, local transmission. So it seems that China 
is not tending to to ease the zero tolerance approach. On the other hand, it's kind of like raising its defense because it's aware of the danger of the Delta variant. On the subject of the Delta variant and how effective the Chinese-made vaccines are against it, what does the evidence say about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and that's actually a question that uh, many. Countries um, using Chinese vaccines are asking. There are different studies showing the effectiveness of Chinese vaccines in real world, but many of these studies actually they were done like back a few months ago, and the prevailing strain was not um, the Delta variant then. Another Chinese famous expert, Zhong Nanshan, in his、um, recent speech. In the forum, he actually mentioned these, and but he quoted like figures、uh, from the Chinese pharmaceutical, like saying that、um, the they these、uh, vaccines they are like for example like sixty, seventy, eighty percent effective in dealing with、um, the Delta variant, and in average he said that the Chinese vaccines should be、uh, around seventy percent effective in. Stopping the transmission of the Delta variant, and if that means if 80% of the Chinese population are、uh, vaccinated, then China should be able to achieve her immunity. So he actually gave a very optimistic forecast that China should be able to achieve her immunity by the end. That's from Zhong Nanshan. But so far, we still need more data to really determine how well Chinese vaccines are. In preventing transmission, but these kind of uncertainties is not only to do with the Chinese vaccines. With other vaccines, I mean, there are still like uncertainties or doubts about how well they can stop transmission. But what scientists agree in general is that、um, vaccines, whether they are made in China or they are like vaccines by other countries, they should be quite effective in preventing serious cases. And also, deaths caused by COVID nineteen, and that's why they're still encouraging people to get、um, the vaccines. Of course, there's another issue that、um, Chinese vaccines or other vaccines by other countries will have to face is whether the immunity、uh, induced by the vaccines will wane, and when are boosters required? So, for Pfizer and BioNTech, I mean. The U.S. has been is now talking about like giving vaccines to people who are vaccinated like six months ago. Or Israel data show that if for people who are were vaccinated like nine months ago, the immunity may not be enough to prevent some、um, the Delta variant. So people in Europe and U.S. are talking about a third vaccine shot, a booster shot. That sort of discussion is it happening in mainland China right now? What people are saying about that? Certainly on the agenda of the Chinese government, because for example,、um, a study by Sinovac showed that、um, the level of neutralizing antibody actually dropped below the required threshold six months after the second dose. But the Sinovac study showed that if you If a person is given a third shot of Sinovac, then the neutralizing antibody kind of like rise、uh, sevenfold and、um, increase the immunity of a person against COVID-19. So that's a study by Sinovac, and、um, China is definitely considering when and what to give to its population as a booster. 
and it's studying. For example, like um, it's studying mixing Sinovac vaccine with a DNA vaccine developed by a U.S. company uh, in Volvio. Um, they are going to start a trial um, in autumn in Yunnan and Guangxi, and they want to see whether it's safe and whether it helps to increase the immunity of a person. So China is looking at like different different options for booster, and also the timing for booster is also very important. Like when should you get start rolling out booster for your population? So this is definitely on the agenda of the Chinese government. But so far, we don't know. Uh, what are the policies and what exactly are they going to do yet? So what is the latest in vaccine development in China? Is there a new mRNA vaccine being developed? Yeah, China is like developing its own mRNA vaccine as well. If you remember like months ago or over a year ago, China was a bit concerned about the safety of mRNA vaccines. It seems that the attitude has changed. Uh, I think that's partly because mRNA vaccines have been administered to so many people around the world. So um, there are like more record or data about its safety and effectiveness. And China wants to develop its own mRNA vaccines as well. And um, there are like different pharmaceuticals doing that. And one of the foreigner is a candidate developed by Wellwax and and also a Chinese company in Suzhou, and they are going to have trials in China, um, in Guangxi and in Yunnan by the end of this year. And they're, they're planning to recruit like 2,000 volunteers and the trial will is supposed to be complete like by March next year. But given the low transmission rate in China, I'm not sure whether they can get enough data within China. And they're supposed to do like multi-site trials around the world. I mean, that's what the company said. Mexico actually mentioned that um, this this candidate is going to hold trials um, in the country. Um, but that was like in, in May, they said that, but we haven't heard about any updates yet. And we don't know whether there are other countries that are going to conduct trials for this vaccine. But China definitely wants to develop its own mRNA vaccines. Josephine Ma, thank you so much for this information. We will keep up to date with all of your vaccine news and analysis on scmp.com. Thank you for your time. China may not be opening its borders yet, but the Beijing Winter Olympics are just seven months away, which brings up the pressing question, will China change its zero-tolerance approach by that time? Meanwhile, mass vaccination campaigns continue across the country. As I speak to you in this last week of August, 55% of the Chinese population are fully vaccinated, and America is not that far behind. They are at 52%. But only one of those two is experiencing the full nightmare of the Delta variant. America has been recording more than 100,000 cases every day. China reported zero cases on Monday, August 23rd. Roughly one year ago, we reported on the race to develop a COVID vaccine. And now is a race to develop booster shots. Only time will tell us what Beijing's next moves in fighting this pandemic will be. 
you can go to scmp.com for the latest news and analysis on COVID-19 in China. On Twitter, you can follow CC Joe and the SCMP Political Economy Team at SCMP Economy. You can also follow me at GZ Mimi. Get vaccinated if you haven't already, and remember to keep that mask on. Stay safe and bye for now.